everybody. This is Derek Hart, the founder and chairman of the Control System Cybersecurity Association International, or as we call it, CSE. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. On May 17, 2023, we initiated a series of events focused on cybersecurity for the transportation sectors. We kicked it off with a five-hour symposium about cybersecurity for planes, trains, and automobiles, and we included some boats in that, too. As an added bonus, we decided to divide our amazing panels that day into four podcasts to go with the series. If you visit our website at www.csa.org, cs2ai.org, you can click in the yellow bar at the top of the page and see all the upcoming events in our 100 Days of Cybersecurity for Transportation. You'll also be entered in the 100 Days series prize wheel, where we'll be giving away over $2,000 worth of prizes at the end of the series, and the details of how to do that are described during each of the events. Thanks for listening in, and we hope to see you soon at one of our live CSA online events over the next couple of months. Take care. Be well. All right. So we've got three, uh, three experts uh, who could talk, I know for a fact, in uh, at least for a couple of you, in, in many different sectors. So again, thank you for all the hijinks trying to get as many complete panels as we possibly could. Uh, look forward to your follow-on events. Uh, each of you can deep dive so interestingly into, uh, into so many areas. Um, I think Jonathan's going to jump from uh, aerospace to pipelines, if I'm not mistaken, when we do the follow-on events. So there'll even be a little bit of flexibility. But um, today, let's go ahead and get into that. So um, if each of you will introduce yourself, let's see, I think I've got a slide or two. Jonathan, why don't you go first? Uh, hi, this, uh, I'm Jonathan Napole with Red Tiger Security. And a lot of you guys have uh, you know, known me over the years, uh, 22 years in OT and industrial control system cybersecurity. And today I'm excited to be on the panel to talk about aviation cybersecurity and uh, look forward to talking with you guys. Cool. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, let's see. Next up here. Hi, I'm Barb. I'm super excited to be on this panel and I will talk to you about aerospace and specifically space asset security and resiliency. That is my specialty. Um, we are building out space and asset resiliency ranges for DOD and for different NATO nations. And so happy to be aboard. Awesome. Thank you, Barbara. And Sean, last but not least. Yeah. Hi there. My name is Sean Gaudio. I was previously with uh, Calgary Airport Authority with the International Air Transport Association and with Transport Canada. Also, I've been involved as a security auditor and instructor with the uh, International Civil Aviation Authority. A lot of what I'm more of a physical security expert, uh, having uh, worked uh, around the world on different areas of aviation security. But what I've been involved in in the last uh, few years, starting out with IATA, is looking at the convergence between physical security from an uh, aviation point of view and cybersecurity, looking at Internet of Things, uh, operational technology, and what have you, and how the two can meet and work together. All right, awesome. Well, let's dive in. And this is uh, such a great, uh, great set of panelists here to, to, to go into this. Um, do each, each of you want to maybe just sort of go around and give a formative statement around your view on, you know, I, if nothing else, where, where are we? Are we uh, highly immature? Highly mature, somewhere in the middle for for cybersecurity as it pertains to you know to aviation and aerospace. Well, I can start off from a bit of my perspective. I think uh, we still, from the aviation sector, uh, uh, we have a long way to go in looking at uh, cybersecurity and 
how it impacts our physical security. A lot of our the focus has been so far in the aviation industry has been on the security of the aircraft from uh, the technology point of view or the protection of information, uh, passenger information, uh, that sort of thing, passenger names lists, uh, reservations using the PNR and so forth. Where the aviation industry needs to start looking more is the connectivity between the traditional physical security and the cyber security. Well, when I'm and when I'm talking about cyber security, I'm not meaning just information technology. I'm referring to any aspects that there is some sort of system, uh, computer system or network hooked up to the physical security. This is an analogous to sort of the, the previous panel. We could talk about cars and get all, all, all about the cars. We could have spent four hours today just talking about cars, except in auto, automotive industry, it's navigation systems and other mm -hmm. systems that Barbara's going to talk about, I think, come into play. There's all these other interrelated systems. And so when we're talking about an industry vertical, we're, the end asset, a car or a ship or a plane, is to your point, it's just one one piece of it, right? There's all these other things, mm. and they're all becoming inter interrelated. So that 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 makes sense. I mean, that's complicated. Very. Yeah, Jonathan or or Barbara, Jonathan, why don't you go next? Any sort of formative? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Thanks. So recently, we did uh, an assessment of the airport and underlying systems for the airport in Doha, Qatar, and in preparation for FIFA World Cup. And uh, just to your point, Sean, there's over 12, actually we counted 13 systems outside of the airplane that have to be functional for the airport to work, let alone, you know, the jet fuel delivery systems, the baggage handling systems, the lighting runway systems, you know, we go on and on. Any one mm -hmm. of those systems fails and you're going to directly impact the ability of that airport to function properly. And it, just as you well imagine, all of those systems are fueled by industrial control systems, Internet of Things, industrial Internet of Things, all the things that we've been studying and, and working on these past 20 years or so as a community. Uh, so, you know, it definitely opened up my eyes when I started seeing that, uh, not to mention the vulnerabilities that are on, on the aircraft, but just what it takes to get that aircraft off the ground and safely back on the ground, it requires a lot of OT. And so that's basically uh, my take is this. I'd like to talk a lot about the ancillary systems that you guys may not know is is powered by OT and ICS systems because magically it just works, hopefully. <laughs> All right, Barbara. So from the aerospace and satellite perspective, cybersecurity is very immature. And it's very immature for multiple reasons that we'll discuss. But, you know, you're looking at people for many years thought it was the ultimate air gap. No one's going to be able to hack something that's in orbit, whether it's low Earth orbit or middle Earth orbit, et cetera. But that's not a reality. And we also have many ancillary systems such as ground stations, antennas. And just due to the nature of the communication that passes through the air based on um, the different radio spectrum, there's all sorts of challenges with eavesdropping. Um, there's just there's a lot. And there's also the challenge that you have with the asset itself, because you just can't go and repair. You can't go and generally update some of the older satellites that are in orbit. So we have satellites from the early 2000s that are still functioning and working, but they do not have modern 
security controls that are enabled. And so you're always looking at how do you protect those systems because you just can't go up there and take it down, fix it, and then redeploy it. Yeah, the, the ultimate and hard to reach, you know, asset discovery is always this topic in all these verticals, like, where is my asset? Those are some assets that are hard to uh, hard to get to. And the tech refresh rate applies too, right? That's technology made how far back? Yeah, well, and the, we still have that, we still have space assets flying from the 2000s. And, and the thing is, is so there has been a change in the development, especially with microsats and small sats, as opposed to the monolithic type sats. But like in a monolithic sat, that could be something like a GPS satellite, which is super important for even all the other verticals because it's communication, navigation, uh, intelligence, all of that is that there is no separation. So if you can access that system, you can move laterally around however you like. And and the other thing too is that, you know, satellites are the ultimate um, IOT, OT, and IT convergence. It's all of the three. And plus you have embedded systems and everything because of the space environment, you know, you've got micro oxygen, you've got all sorts of scenarios that you also have to have these hardened. So it's not quite off the shelf, but then we have a supply chain issue where a lot of the supply suppliers do not have cybersecurity built in. So that when they're getting a tactical specification to build to, um, and I look at this because I actually test satellites on the ground before they're actually deployed, is there is no cybersecurity that's been actually built in. And of course, we all know building in cybersecurity is much better than building it on, but we're super immature and we're trying to progress it. And that's the reason why, you know, right now the maturity of, of legislation and requirements before you shoot something up into orbit is very, very critical because you do not want to put something up there that's going to deprecate and become space junk. We already have over a million items that we really should collect. And, you know, if we ever have a situation that's called the Kessler effect, uh, two satellites, you know, crash together. I mean, we saw China, we saw uh, Russia. They actually did a laser test where they exploded their satellites in space. It creates over 20, created over 20,000 um, micrometeors, which are very damaging. The space stations had to move three or four times, et cetera. Um, we have to be super careful of what we're putting up there is rugged and secure so that we don't make especially low Earth orbit um, unusable. And that's a whole I can't wait till we do our deep dive with you, because that whole area is is it wasn't I wasn't even thinking about it when we we're putting this whole thing together. But you touched on it. It touches, I suspect, all the other verticals, certainly many of them, yes. if not in some way, all of them. Uh, it's an overarching sort of thing. And. That is a, you know, that's a, in thinking my military days, like, man, when you can go after something like that, you can affect one thing or attack one thing and affect lots of other areas. There's lots of value to that from an adversarial standpoint. All right, so uh, let's let's get into it. There's questions starting to come in. Um, this is a good one. And I think we'll, we'll go back first to, to you, Jonathan. Uh, John, you'll all have comments on this, I think, especially based on what you said, you know, I think there's so much stuff and there's so many different um, assets and people. So here's the question. I'm doing an airline assessment now, and there is confusion about who is responsible for OT cyber at the airport, since the airline company considers many as third-party service providers. Oh, absolutely, yes. That's, that's the biggest issue is that is ownership. 
you know, and then you have the governance issue is is way out of proportion. So if you start off with governance and policy all the way down to who owns what asset, um, it's always this, you know, they're doing this, they're supposed to be doing this. And so whenever you have ambiguity uh, that leads to uh, inaction, you know, so uh, we always like to start off with, you know, tracing down who's responsible for which uh, piece of the system. Everything that has an IP address has to have an owner and should have uh, proper cyber hygiene. But, you know, that's that's often not the case. And I'll, I'll turn it around. I see Sean <laughs> raised his head up and down. I'm sure he's got a lot to say as well. On that, I think there's a lot of confusion, uh, even within an organization, who who's responsible for looking at this type of uh, threat? Is it your physical security or aviation security group, or is it your cybersecurity group, which often are just called an IT security? So they're only worried about that. And then when you get into an airline with the aircraft itself, who's responsible? Again, is it the aircraft manufacturer? Is it the aircraft maintenance? What have you? So it, it gets you know, the ownership, as Jonathan pointed out, also it's the organizational challenges that one group may not appreciate the threat that it could cause to another group as well. Well, and I also think, too, so when I'm doing assessments, and I'm looking at the tactical specifications that I require them to provide on any of the embedded systems and things like that. Um, I want to understand that supplier. I want to see um, are they like certified from the perspective of quality, so ISO certification, um, et cetera, but also is developer RACI. That matrix really helps understand who is responsible and accountable. And, and you know, from the space asset perspective, just as with aviation is, you know, that asset is, is very, very valuable. And, and having those clear lines of who is responsible and not creating silos. So one thing I see all the time is that people say, oh, I have nothing to do with the aircraft. I have nothing to do with the asset. I'm just in the office. I'm just managerial. I'm doing the administrative reports. The challenge is, is that when you take traditional IT and you're linking it to the control system um, in order to you know, understand the performance, et cetera, look for faults, um, you now have created a vector for a hacker. You've created the vector. And so you have to make sure that they are very secure in those interactions. But also I see all the time, um, and I see it all over the world because I work with multiple different NATO countries, is you have these silos. You have the IT silo, you have the SCADA and OT silo, and then you have the IOT silo, which actually is closer related to the IT silo, which is very strange. However, um, they don't work in unison. They don't even know how to talk the same language. And so one of the things that I've been working on um, through the Institute of Space and Cyber Research is breaking down those silos to figure out how do these dovetail together and how can one organization's work also support the other organization's work for a total and comprehensive harmonized approach to security in general. Is it fair to, I mean, the question's coming in, I was thinking along this line, who owns the risk? So it's one thing to say who owns the piece of equipment or the, the service that's now being provided by connectivity, who owns the risk? And I think when I buy an airline ticket, if I'm just thinking about the one you know, facet of this, 
I'm thinking I'm the airline, the people I bought the airline ticket from have better be thinking about this, even if a third party is providing something to them, right? I mean, is, don't they own the risk? And is that where this is going to go? I mean, how, how does this get done? When, when people right now could say, oh, no, no, we don't have it. That's them. So I agree with you. I think that, you know, we have to look at the level of impact. So if you're an airline and you're, or if you're a spacecraft, say, for you know, Falcon 5 and you have um, astronauts on board, you have to protect the human life. That's always going to be number one. And so if you have responsibility for that life, you have responsibility to make sure that everything that builds up to a system that can support that flight needs to work. And this goes back to something that people think is fairly boring from cybersecurity, but it comes back to regulations, requirements, guidelines, and strong contracts to make sure that if you're contracting with this baggage handler or you're getting this embedded system, that you have teeth in the contract that they also have liability in the event of a mishap. John, Jonathan? If you think about things like the lighting system on the runway, you know, the airline doesn't control that and doesn't own that. However, if the lighting system should fail, just as a plane is about to land, that could put all the passengers at risk. And there's a lot of potential loss of life and safety implications. So I I believe that there would be some ownership uh, in the airport itself and maintaining the airport systems that support aviation. And then there's uh, also responsibilities on the airlines themselves. Where you draw that line is, is not very clear. I totally agree on that aspect. It's not clear. And like I said, it's not always clear with our organization, too, because they might not. Some uh, groups may not be within an organization, may not be looking at threat vectors against their their activity from a cyber attack, but just may be looking at it from a, a regular operational point of view. So who's responsible to look at that threat vector? in the organization as well. But as in an aviation, it's always a shared responsibility between the airports, the air carriers, maintenance, what have you. Uh, legislation needs to catch up in this area, cyber cyber areas. Now, there's uh, uh, ICAO standards came out for security about three or four years ago, but a num- num- number of countries still need to get that into their framework. I could give you one example uh, actually happened at a theme park we were working at. Uh, we were able to connect from our tablet to their Wi-Fi system and spread from there into their lighting system for the entire park. Wow. And so we pointed out to their leadership. They're like, well, what's the big deal if you turn the lights off? We can just send a truck around to each breaker and turn them all back on. And we said, well, what if it's a combined attack where someone turns off the lights and they they grab a celebrity? You know, you're, you're, you're basically creating a scenario that supports a physical attack. And so why even let that happen? Right. And I think in, in the power industry, we've had the privilege of having NERC SIP standards. That's pretty strong standards going back to 2007, 2008. And I think they became law in 2010, where there's six six walls of protection around any device that's that's supporting uh, control function. Right. But we don't have those standards in aviation. Right. So if you have a very important uh, cabinet a hopping enclosure that's a, that has all the PLCs that's supporting a critical function. There's not a, con- a security control right now that says that you have to have that cabinet locked and you have to have a surveillance camera on it and you have to log who goes in and out of that cabinet. 
Now, you do have some additional protection in terms of you should ho- know who's going into that protected area of the, of the airport. But what, from what we found from our assessments uh, of airport support systems is that the physical and cybersecurity systems are not they're not intertwined properly so that, you know, the physical access to these systems are not being monitored, not being protected. And from a, from a pen testing standpoint, you know, you know, we've also we also get paid to break into systems. And, you know, when all else fails, dressing up as a, the proper role with a fake badge and walking into someplace and plugging your computer directly into you know, an industrial switch is the fastest and easiest way to get right on the cable with all you know 65,000 ports open and then probably the you know routable access to all the, the entire system because it's not very segmented so that that's another piece i just wanted to throw out there to you guys is we need to take some of that rigor and, and thinking that was applied in other verticals and and not reinvent the wheel and apply them to this industry and also to space as well hey jonathan the next time you need an extra body to do some of that master rating work i'm available i've, I've always wanted to do that and I'm, I'm more than willing to try to fake my way into where I need to go. So you just let me know. So Derek, are you telling me that you like to play dress up? <laughs> no, I, I was thinking of uh, Catch Me If You Can, you know, the movie, you know, being able to the cockpit if I can. Now, you know, it, it's interesting. You, you guys are making a great point. And I know, Sean, that that, that, that physical, you, you know, that's a big, big, big part of what you're going to talk about in your follow-on session. But it makes sense, right? If, I, if we can go talk about all this sort of traditional protections uh, in the, you know, connected space, but if somebody can just walk right to the cabinet and get in, you can almost say so what to some of the other things you might be doing. It's I guess that's not entirely fair because you can at least keep threat actors from a far distance away. But but people can walk right in. That's still a huge problem. Um, four or five threads just got sort of spawned in chat and in my head uh, based on what you guys are talking about. So back to an earlier question. I think the timing of it's good now. Based on new directives released by TSA, do you foresee mandated security requirements for regulated parties and their third-party authorized representatives. Yeah, I totally see that. Uh, as they said, the TSA requirements that just came out, they're based on the ICAO standard that came out about four years ago. So I could see it in, in any aspect of the aviation industry that will need some sort of uh, regulatory oversight on this. So that's where it gets tricky too, because a lot of the uh, existing uh, people that do the oversight have background like myself and physical security and not necessarily strong on cyber security. So that's where people in, in the AVSEC industry are going to have to get a bit more training and more experience on the cyber side to actually do compliance on that, as well as to implement these new requirements as they come along. And then who, who would be that regulatory body? Because, you know, you already have FAA doing a bunch of stuff and you're going to throw TSA yeah. in the mix. And the, the original TSA security standards, in my opinion, were were subpar. I mean, the, the, the latest revisions that you know, ha, has become better. However, I still think they're not where they need to be. There's there's still a lot of gaps in that security standard. And then is it going to be uh, you're going to have like a, a whole uh series of, of different, uh, you know, three-letter agencies all walking around the airport trying to check boxes. So I, I think it's a, it's, it's a really interesting question. Yeah, I, I see it probably be the existing authority who's responsible for aviation security on uh, whatever uh, country you're at. U.S., that would be TSA. Again, though, it gets into some of the areas, though, for uh, 
uh, say, in the U.S., the FAA is responsible for some of the uh, security for the actual aircraft itself. Uh, so it could be a number of agencies. Other countries, those are the same uh, same organizations. When I say organization, I say large organization, but it could be different aspects within that organization. So it's who does it, who has the expertise to do it, because some of these the inspectors don't necessarily have the cyber expertise. Also, keep in mind that in the United States, an airport is not required to use TSA for their security. There's mm -hmm. a number of airports that use private security companies instead of TSA. So yeah. that hurdle probably also needs to be tied, that loophole needs to be tied up as well. Well, that adds in a whole other stakeholder that needs to be inspected as well. And, uh, similar in Canada, where screening is provided not by the airport, but by a separate screening authority. So it's another another stakeholder that's involved. Back to the same problem you guys were already talking about, which is so many different parties involved in all these things. Yeah. Sean, here's a question for you. Do you see Canadian airports embracing the TSA standards, considering our proximity and major flight traffic in the U.S.? Or part B, does, do you see Bill C-26 in Canada being a stronger driver? Uh, that's a really good question. I'm I'm not really sure either way because uh, the proposed bills to uh, deal with critical infrastructure, but then uh, Canada also has an obligation to implement the ICAO standards, which could be similar to what TSA is doing or what other the EU is has their own standards out. And actually, Qatar was one of the first countries to have a standard out in this area. So um, I'm not really sure how they'll look. We'll definitely have to have some sort of framework, but from our experience, so we, we often have to work closely with the TSA in Canada, considering there's about 500 flights a day between the two countries, so. Yeah. Uh, Barbara, here's a question back on satellites that came in a little bit ago, and it was, I think, in, in reference to some comment you made about some sophistication and compartment. This person used the term compartmentalized, and you know, but at the same time, if they are sophisticated and compartmentalized, how does how are they also easy to hack? Uh, so they're not. The thing is, is that you know, so when you're a hacker, you want to be able to gain access, maintain access, elevate access, move laterally. That's from a traditional IT, but it, it goes across this. So the challenge is, is that it is very easy. So in 2022, part of the ESA group, and we were able, we had the permission to to hack an ESA European Space Agency satellite, and we were able to do a ransomware attack. We were able to inject malicious code. Um, uh, imagery and remote sensing, hyperspectral sensing is, is part of my background. I was able to do um, damage the imagery associated um, with that prior to it hitting the ground station. And so the bottom line is they're not well segmented. They have outdated, they have outdated uh, controls in place, but that is because the space environment itself is very challenging. Things need to be hardened for um, ionizing radiation. There's extreme um, swings in temperature, which really plays havoc on any type of device. But with a satellite, you have to understand, too, that you have power limitations because it costs $1 million to send 250 grams to low Earth orbit. So you've got the power limitations because you're going to want to use, like, 
solar sails. You've got container space limitations, not just from a cost, but because you need to be able to um, deploy that efficiently. You've got weight challenges as well as vibrational issues. So there is a lot of other things, but the power is the reason why strong encryption and being able to do decryption and encryption on the space asset is very challenging right now at this point because you do not have an abundance of power. So you have to look at this as you're in a low power situation all of the time. Ground stations, you know, there you're linked to the satellites. So, you know, for example, if you're in geostationary orbit, you don't have to manage um, your attack approach because of timing. If you're in LEO, you're gonna have access to that for seven minutes every 45 minutes or so. And so the challenge here is that you need to schedule out and figure out, okay, so on this these first two seven minutes when I have access and I can gain access, what do I need to do to set up the path so that at maybe the fifth path, you know, path, I can then go and um, elevate my privilege and be able to do what I need. So it depends on the orbit. So it depends on your altitude above the ground. It depends if you're geostationary or not. And the ground station is a big scenario if you're wanting to inject something that way. But again, because again, we're using all these K bands, KA bands, K, all these different radio bands. The scenario is that you only need to be close enough to a ground station if the information is not encrypted to actually eavesdrop. And that's one of the biggest things. So right now I'm working with um, a group um, consulting in the Netherlands and we're looking at software defined radio and the ability to use different types of, of devices, different types of filters and different types of antenna to figure out how we can identify if a, if a, um, signal is being eavesdropped upon and also to fix any attenuation depending on the radio band you're on brain can damage it i mean there's all sorts of difference i mean it's very complex um and so because of the complexity the challenge is it was never looked at from a cyber perspective to say oh well maybe when there's greater attenuation i'm not going to be able to have i don't have the same bandwidth so Maybe I can, you know, do X, Y or Z from an exploit perspective, or maybe I just wait because I actually if I want to inject this code. I need to wait till there is no attenuation of that of that signal. There's all sorts of very unique nuances. And because there's all types of different satellites based on what their function is, you know, from military and intelligence gathering that are optic in nature to GPS, there's a whole range. So it is a very complex kind of scenario to identify, but right now we've proven that we can hack satellites. I also want to make a quick point that sure. I think we're about to have history repeat itself because if you think about when we were all using ISDN modems and we had a, such a fast paced growth in bandwidth, we can do things now that, we, that was very difficult back then. But I just saw an article in Wired Magazine where they were able to get 200 gigabit per second speed with laser from the ground to 
uh, outer space. So the things that we're, the, the excuses that we're hearing from people like, oh, it's too difficult to hack satellites, it's too slow, we have to wait for the timing and all the special sequencing of things, that could go away in the next five years and we could have just super broadband right to right to space. So the timing to, to get all these things thought out is now instead of waiting and, and letting technology happen before we have the regulations and, and, and requirements up front. So why so while we're waiting for it to catch up, now is the time to, to, to set these standards in place. Yeah, the pace of technology development far outpaces the well, we can just wait because this problem is, you know, we saw it in some future day. It's compressing, right? Um that that's oh man, it's it's sobering to think about all the different things as you guys are talking. My mind is wandering about different applications and different things we're reliant on and in the military sector. And I'm thinking about my background there, which is now dated, but I know they're more than ever are they dependent on satellite communications and things like this that need to work um, need to work pretty predictably. Hey everybody, Derek Harp here. And I just want to take a brief moment to thank three companies that make this podcast series possible. The first company is Waterfall Security Solutions. They led the charge this year for the podcast and they specifically sponsored it from their podcast, the Industrial Security Podcast. So check that out. That's a great linkage to an entire other series of over 100 episodes. They had their anniversary recently focused on control system cybersecurity. And they were supported this year by KPMG, and Fortinet. We could not do this without them. These companies not only have supported this podcast series this year, but they've supported CSA since its very early days eight years ago. And we're entirely grateful to the teams and dedicated professionals at Waterfall Security Solutions, KPMG, and Fortinet. There's lots and lots of questions and comments coming in. Let's see. I'm trying to prioritize where to go. Let's talk about, um, you know what, we don't need to dwell on this, but I'm just curious, and because this person's asked about 5G and 6G, Posing anything in particular, uh, any cybersecurity risks that those technologies are, pertain- are, are proposing or, or exposing, you know, this sector to? The only thing I've heard of in the aviation industry, it's where it's not intentional that there's some of the 5G may interfere with some air navigation aspects of uh, the aircraft. Particularly, IATA has raised this as a concern in the U.S. So this is more inadvertent. Uh, consequences opposed to uh, attack. Okay. Um, I, I can throw a little uh, tidbit in there. Uh, a lot of the vendors of the, the systems that support aviation uh, will have a SIM card uh, and a cellular modem at some point in the back plane of their controllers for remote access, troubleshooting, and preventing them maintenance and such. And uh, as you know, there's there's many vulnerabilities with 5G, just as well as there was with LTE, 4G, and SMS. And and I think uh, some of the carriers are trying to say that, well, we're tagging the packets so you have just as good of security as MPLS. Um, and what we're telling our customers is that you should never trust a third-party carrier with the security of your system. You know, and a lot of these cellular modem companies uh, will allow you to have an IPsec firewall on board on the modem. You just have to set up the certificate keys. So why not use those capabilities to build your own tunnel through the 5G network and not allow the carrier to be your only line of defense? So that's just a just a free tidbit from what we've seen out there that might help somebody. I was going to ask this question in a simple way, but this person's asking it in a much more professional, interesting way. I was thinking, can a person get in a seat and hack the airplane? But his question is, have all commercial airlines and manufacturers mitigated the attack vectors and surfaces to prevent passengers from accessing aviation management systems? I've heard people saying, well, they can get in through their entertainment system and what have you to get into the avionics. 
those systems are usually closed systems and don't talk to each other. So I think that attack vector is pretty remote. I have heard of that, but from what I've read and talked to people, I think it's not a likely scenario. I remember when United had put out a bug bounty program where they said, hey, you know, you guys go after the uh, aviation systems and from the Wi-Fi we provide on a plane, if you can get into something else and disrupt something, maybe not the uh, flight capabilities of the plane, but just disrupt something, we'll give you a million miles, right? And so somebody did it. And what they did was they disrupted the entertainment queue of movies coming because every time the plane pulls into uh, to the gate, you know, there's WiMAX system that basically allows us to synchronize new media that goes into the, the screens, which is all Linux based uh, on the plane. And he was able to replay, replace uh, some of the videos with uh, adult content and make it basically a disgrace to, to the airline company. And so, I mean, there's other ways you could disrupt things that's not safety related. But I think that uh, the ability to hack through Wi-Fi on the plane and actually get into the, con the, the triple redundant control system that controls the plane is 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 is, is already been done for and attempted a, a long time. So I don't I don't believe it's okay, but uh, you, you never know what, what's possible these days. You know? Yeah, that that there's those stories about somebody sitting and in, in, in accessing. I'm glad you brought up a, a real example of it because I've never been sure how many of those are just that stories and how many are no no. Here's what happened. Um, a passenger right in the seat able to do X, Y, or Z. But you raise a really good point. This, we're not just talking about safety. Yeah, clearly that's one of the top concerns when it comes to cybersecurity and aviation. I mean, no doubt, right? The human lives. But you can disrupt somebody's business. You can do a lot of things to them that have nothing to do with safety. Uh, I would say Colonial Pipeline is an analog comparison. It just, you know, let's detect the billing system and disrupt gas flow. I don't, I'm not aware of any safety issues that were, uh, that came up from that incident, but it certainly had a huge cost, and um, and it cost that company, and it cost people who, who ran out of gas, and, and you know all over the eastern seaboard. So that's applicable here as well, right? Where where there are ways to muck around. If you don't like a, a particular airline, and you want to you want to screw with them, there's plenty of opportunity potentially to do that. Not safety, but problematic. Oh yes, that's where. Actually, most of the attacks on on airlines have taken place actually have been denial of service of their reservation system or their departure control system. So basically, they, they can't check people in, can't board them. and Or if they have to do it, they have to go up through manual processes that would take forever. Basically, having it printing out a backup and writing out boarding passes like they used to. That's been the main attacks, and it's it's... You know, it's happened all over the world, and it's no, it's not safety. No one's going to die from this, but it's going to uh, really screw up an airline for a few days. And that's reputational risk, right? I mean, that's a oh, different of, risk, of but it's very real. Yeah, this will mean canceled flights. This will mean delays, what have you. Yeah, Jonathan, you're muted. Just saying that that just means there's going to be a lot more memes and TikToks, and shareholder value goes down. <laughs> yeah. You got a shout out. A number of you did actually have all kinds of comments and I can't read them all to you. But Barbara, specifically, uh, someone who is a, a well-known person in the in the industry said, uh, bravo, Barbara, doing RF assessments from an offensive perspective. Our team does that for folks that exa that exact reason with SDR tools. Yes. Thank you so much. It, you know, it is really important. And, you know, so, um, you know, I've talked with all sorts of organizations, including NASA and Goddard Space Center, et cetera. And, you know, I feel a little bit like an evangelist saying, look, you really can 
you really can hack these. I mean, honestly, you can go out to GitHub and there's a mod chip and application code that you can use as what we call script kitty. So someone that's not really a hacker and you can go and, and, and do a Starlink injection attack. I mean, Biosat in 2022 February was launched that impacted the Ukrainians uh, communication. I mean, I can go through the list of real life attacks and, and there there are a lot. And right now, you know, we haven't seen the uh, tremendous challenges. But I mean, GPS satellites, um, you know, though they are better protected than the majority. I mean, it will take it would take a percentage of those satellites to come down that could impact air, air navigation. It would impact rail. It would impact self-driving cars. It would impact everything. It would impact power stations. And so we are more and more dependent on satellites to be able to, um, you know, I'll say, organize, harmonize um, our world. And so there becomes a greater dependency on them, greater risk if there's a challenge. Also, VSATs are very important for gas pump transactions in the United States. Um, and also for logistics tracking for shipping containers. So, all you know, we've all felt the pain from that in the past. So, you know, these things need to work 24 uh, seven. And hopefully as security professionals, we can do our part to to prevent something that can be prevented. And it's not an act of God or something. You know, let's let's try to prevent as much as we can. That's preventable. Yeah, it, it, it seems to me that there's like everywhere else, you know, all these different sectors. You look into the hood, there's such a human being problem. And one of you mentioned this earlier, it might have been you, Sean, but you know, there's people doing, making things, and they're not bad, and they're just not thinking about cybersecurity at all. And mm. they're doing whatever they do, and they may be very excited about the efficiency, the, 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 you know, that this connectivity. I mean, you know, you're, Jonathan, you're talking about things that now have to do it in a certain way. You know, there's being able to remotely control things and be able to get the data in real time, understanding of all the different things. And there's opportunity for man in the middle attack. It's if data goes back, you know, it's not just recording out, but things going back to attenuate or adjust things. There's all sorts of amazing outcomes, right? If we're just having a discussion around what are all the cool new technologies and what are they doing for the aviation and aerospace industries, there'd be an endless discussion, right? But then there's this unintended consequence side. And so we've got a lot of work to just do on human beings, right? All throughout the industry to raise everybody up, say, as you implement, as you even design something, you, you got to start thinking about that. It seems to me that's potentially the number one problem. Is that yay, nay? Do you agree, disagree? Oh, I, I you nailed, totally, nailed it on the head. Go ahead. I totally agree. And it's uh, not only just the actual attack, or, or it could be inadvertent attacks may enable someone to have access to a system. There's also concerns about insiders that they may be able to implement and put in some code somewhere that uh, may affect uh, a system or the inadvertentness as well. So no, the, the human factor is definitely something that needs to be considered. Yeah, you mentioned and insiders and in our annual report based on 550 respondents you know, what is the, what is your, we ask them all, you know, what is your top uh, threat actor? And I always like it as like, you know, nation states are fun to talk about, but the number one threat actor by far the winner was um, negligent insiders. Malicious insiders mm -hmm. were second and collective between the two, they far outweighed the other threat actors. And so I was thinking about, uh, you know, consoles and panels that anybody potentially could open. And, and you're right, Jonathan, if they're inside a zone, you could say, well, shoot, most of the world can't get there. The physical zone that's cordoned off, but the insiders can get there 
And there are insiders that you could muck around with a, something in a panel because it's just openable and it's in a quote unquote secure zone, but who, you know, who cares? That That's a problem. Insider threat is, is very real. Uh, Gary, I think you're a little bit early and we'll be with you uh, shortly. So the next panel is already forming up. Uh, we, we've got about five more minutes together. So yeah, um, any, um, I don't think we, we, there's so many questions we can't get to. I think each of you, if you want to make sort of a, a parting comment or thought you've had as of today's panel or just something you think is the most important thing you want to convey today. Um, again, everybody come to the individual sessions. All three of these individuals are going to do amazing sessions in the next 100 days of transportation cybersecurity where they can go deeper uh, than we're able to do, obviously, in this format today where we're covering so many things. But any final comments? You want to go maybe Barbara, Sean, Jonathan? So I think that the key is, is that we need to pay attention to this. We need to talk about it and we need to have very real um, actions and tasks to get it done, including not only ensuring that you're using hardened and cyber ready uh, components for your space assets and that you're understanding and looking at all of the physical and IT controls at the ground station. But you're looking at this from the perspective of it is IOT, OT, and IT combined. I also think that, you know, making sure that we're being responsible stewards for our orbits, including low Earth orbit, so that we um, have the necessary, I'll say, regulations and agreement. And it's very challenging because we're dealing with many, many nations with many, many different motivations. So, so it makes it very challenging. But just getting it out there, understanding that base assets are very critical to normal life, not just intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, and that we need to pay attention. We need to build guidelines, regulations around this to ensure that we can appropriately use space and that we can maintain our same level um, from a societal perspective here because we are so dependent on them. Okay. Uh, my takeaway would be, really that uh, organizations need to try and break down the silos between physical security and cybersecurity. I think that's key. Cybersecurity professionals don't think about physical security and vice versa. I think once that's done, each group will be able to think of threat vectors from a physical or cybersecurity point of view and have a holistic security approach. So one quick point is I know we're talking about all these issues that we're finding with uh, the lack of proper controls in these, uh, in, these, in these industries, but keep in mind that, you know, we, we as a society, we've been building roads and bridges and things for thousands of years. You know, we've only had computers and computer security for basically 40 or 50 years maximum, I think. So this is a brand new ground. And unfortunately, uh, it doesn't get attention until something really bad happens. You know, it, uh, we're a reactionary society and uh, you just look, take a look at what happened in electric power. You know, at first every power company was able to kind of have their own set of controls of, of, in whatever way they wanted to until, until we saw there was so much negligence that uh, FERC came in and NERC came in and said, you know what, we're taking this out of your hands and here's a set of security controls that you're mandated to follow. And if you don't follow them, here are fines and penalties that are gonna be placed on you for not doing it. And unfortunately, that's gonna have to be what it takes in some of these ultra critical industries, because if, if you leave it up to an organization to do, the, to, to do the right thing, they may not be trained and may not have the right guidelines in order to do that, because it's such a new industry. So uh, that's just my takeaway is, 
you know, uh, we, I think we're going to be driving to the point where, you know, now is the time to set the standards in the, uh, and make sure that we, we make them repeatable and, 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 and can be followed. And also make sure that we have the right uh, responsible party for each part of the system that's held accountable for its cyber health. Yeah, that comes up all the time, especially all the discussions over the years around NERC, you know, NERC SIP. And it's, it's often followed up by it doesn't equal security, but it moves the needle. Uh, yeah, compli compliance with the list, like there's still going to be problems, there's still going to be holes. However, it, you might have moved from low maturity to medium. I'm not going to argue where people are in the, you know, in the industry because of those regulations, but it, it makes sense. You've progressed somewhere probably because you've been forced to, but it doesn't cover, it, do it won't ever cover everything. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that, that seems to be, this is an industry where, where, where we can easily see some more. So, well, hey, I want to thank you uh, all three, uh, not only for being here today, but for what you do in the industry, keeping us, uh, keeping us safe. Cardboard manufacturer, I, I, I don't want them to get hacked, but I'm not totally mm -hmm. concerned about whether they do. But what you guys do, it really matters. So thank you on behalf of society and for, uh, for prepping, prepping for today and for doing the follow-on events. I mean, we're, we're excited. We're getting some initial feedback about these deeper dives with each of you. And um, I, that was a cool pivot that really came up and you guys all jumped, uh, you know, jumped around a little bit to, to do that with us. So thank you again for all that. And uh, we'll uh, we'll see you soon. All right. Thank thanks you. A lot. Hey, well, thank you.